Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue our coverage of William Howard Taft. This is part two, so if you did not listen to part one, go back and do so. In this part two, we delve into his policies, both foreign and domestic, as well as his impact on the Supreme Court. Taft was instrumental in creating a corporate tax, continued the trust-busting ways of his predecessor, but I don't want to steal Jean Ann's thunder, so we'll let her give all the details in a bit. But before Jean, a quick plug for our sponsors, Keen Insights Internet Services, that's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S, they spell it that way on purpose, for all of your web and digital marketing needs, helping their clients compete online since 2007. Elite Book Edits, writing, writing, wherever it's wrong, Go to Elite Book Edits for all your book and writing editing needs. Check out also my books on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, look up Jimmy LaSalle, and you can find The Naughty List, you can find Immortals Revelations, and you can find Unified Marketing Strategy. A little something for everyone, I guess. And now, on to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. So, for Taft, there were a number of important domestic issues that we should discuss. True to his promise in his inaugural address, he hoped to change the existing tariff. Taft felt that high tariffs hurt consumers and that they limited competition, and he hoped to get them lowered. He supported a tariff bill that by the time it got to the Senate and was ready to be passed, there had been so much compromise and changes made to the original bill. It was called the Payne Aldrich Tariff Act, and it divided an already divided Republican Party. And the bill only lowered tariff rates by about 5%, and in some cases raised the rates on other products. Another important thing that this act created was a corporate tax. This taxed corporations with income more than 5,000 at a rate at 1%. Today, corporations are taxed typically on a graduated rate from anywhere to, you know, 15 to 35 percent. Most corporations are taxed at 35 percent. And when the tax codes were revised again in 1913, we see the addition of a capital gains tax. And we don't like those. (laughs) Anyone (laughs) who has sold a company will groan at the mere mention of the capital gains tax. And this is a tax on the income that's derived from the sale of a corporate stock. Corporate tax has been a big moneymaker for the federal government. Big, big, big moneymaker. So Taft also travels throughout the country and he tours the South, the Southwest. He gives almost 260 speeches and he promoted the new tariff bill. And this was not the only tour of the country. He would travel again through the Western states trying to gain support for treaties with both Great Britain and France, but it was not to be. You know, Great Britain and France never approved the treaties. While his predecessor, Theodore Roosevelt, is known as a trust buster, more lawsuits against monopolies were brought against companies in Taft's four years than in Teddy Roosevelt's seven. Standard Oil and American Tobacco Co. were the most famous of the monopolies he went after. The suit brought against U.S. Steel, which had been given the green light by his predecessor, Theodore Roosevelt, signaled the end to the friendship between Taft and Roosevelt. 
And when push came to shove, you know, at the end of the case, the Supreme Court voted in favor of U.S. Steel. Another important thing was the Postal Savings Bank Act, and it went into effect in January of 1911, and it remained in place until 1967. This law created a post office banking system. Individuals could buy certificates or saving stamps, and they were issued to depositors as proof of their deposit and funds were then transferred to a designated bank. Only one bank in each state had the right to do this. And savings accounts that had less than $500 in them earned 2% interest. The limit on the accounts would be increased over time. And this was a rather popular thing to do because unlike other banks, this money was guaranteed by the United States government. Once upon a time, your money wasn't always so safe in the bank. And when the federal government creates the FDIC during the Great Depression, this is a game changer. And by the mid 1960s, there's no longer a need or really a public demand for a postal savings bank. But once upon a time, you could do that. So the FDIC protects your deposits. It's deposit insurance coverage. It was initially set at 2,500, and then they raised that pretty immediately, you know, to 5,000. So that was 1933, 1934. In 1950, they increased it to 10,000. 1960, I'm sorry, 1966, it was 15,000, 69, 20,000, 74, 40,000. In 1980, it went to 100,000. Today, it is, in fact, Justice. Now, he was strategic in his choice of a chief justice. After all, this is the position he wants that he has wanted for his entire life. And so he doesn't put some young guy in the role. And I use guy because there was only men on the Supreme Court. There will not be a woman until, you know, 1980. And he appoints a seasoned 65 year old in the hopes that he won't be there too long. And there may still be a chance for him to be chief justice someday. One of the biggest events really that is still talked about today that really captured the hearts of the American public was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire on March 25th, 1911. The Shirtwaist Factory was in New York City and the owners would have the doors locked to keep workers in and workers were inspected to make sure that they weren't you know, stealing anything. Like many factories of the era, conditions were deplorable. The fire escapes were broken. Again, the doors were locked. So when a fire broke out on the top floors of the factory, it was a recipe for disaster. The majority of the employees were teenage immigrant girls, and there were about 500 people working that day, and 146 people were killed in the fire. You know, the images of young girls jumping from the top windows so as not to be burned alive. It was terrible and it was a preventable tragedy, which made it even more terrible. The story led to public outrage and a push for the labor movement in their goal to make safe working environments for all workers a reality. The owners were arrested and charged with first and second degree manslaughter, but they were found not guilty. Imagine the thought process that allows for the factory owners to go free. The notion that the lives of these young immigrant girls had such little significance in the eyes of the jury. Years later, civil lawsuits were brought against the owners and they ended up having to pay a fine 
that came to about $75 per life lost. This event also led to the passing of workplace safety laws in New York. The Children's Bureau was signed into law by President Taft in 1912, and the Bureau still exists today. When it was first created, the Bureau, of course, dealt with issues like child labor, but also high infant mortality rates, the improvement of conditions of orphans with the creation of child welfare agencies and the creation of juvenile courts. Orphans living in overcrowded cities were often transported by trains to various locations in the Midwest to either work or to be adopted by families. Today, the Children's Bureau is responsible for ensuring the safety and the welfare of children in the United States. During his presidency, the 16th Amendment is proposed, which is a graduated income tax. In his inaugural address, he spoke of a graduated inheritance tax. This was proposed, but the Senate disliked the idea. So instead, they proposed a graduated income tax. And we'll talk more about this amendment within our series of podcasts on the progressive era. True to his word again, we see the reorganization of federal departments. So the Department of Labor and Commerce were split into two different agencies, and both had cabinet level positions. All of the agencies having to do with labor were transferred over to the newly created Department of Labor and labor issues had readily taken a back seat to other issues such as, you know, big business and commerce when the two departments were together. The purpose of the Department of Labor is to foster, promote and to develop the well-being of wage earners, job seekers and retirees of the United States to improve working conditions, to advance opportunities for profitable employment, and to assure work-related benefits and rights. That comes directly from their website. The Department of Labor ensures that laws are being followed when it comes to minimum wage, overtime, workplace safety, even parental and medical leaves. And they work with unions. When you hear of things like the unemployment rate, we get those facts from the Department of Labor. So that's where it comes from. For foreign policy, Taft is known for something called dollar diplomacy. If you go to the Department of State's website and more specifically the Office of the Historian, they describe the goal of dollar diplomacy as a way to create stability and order abroad that would best promote American commercial interests. Taft referred to it as exchanging dollars for bullets. Investments by United States companies in countries with instability could help alleviate some of the problems. The United States would use its economic might to get countries to do what we want them to do and allow them to benefit a little bit as well. Two areas that you can look at to understand this policy a little bit better are China and Nicaragua. President Taft hoped to, you know, purchase the rights to China's railroads. The thought process was if we can control railroad lines, we essentially control the economy. Now, you have to understand that during this time in history, other countries are creating what we called spheres of influence. And in a previous podcast, we talked about how the United States wanted to institute an open door policy in China. So, you know, this idea of us trying to get the rights to railroads didn't come out of nowhere. This is very much connected to that. 
the United States was not successful in doing this, and it led to increased suspicion from countries like Japan and Russia on the motives of the United States. And for those who know their world history, revolution in China would begin in 1911. Latin American countries were of particular interest to the government, ensuring the safety of the Western Hemisphere and limiting European interference in the region is not a new concept. During the presidency of Taft, we see some Latin American countries become known as banana republics. The United Fruit Company, which is now known as Chiquita Brands International, over here of Chiquita Banana, this is who we're talking about. Their biggest competition was the Standard Fruit Company, which today is known as Dole Food Company. The companies had a lot of influence over the political and economic development of a number of countries, specifically, you know, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, much of that influence was not positive. These countries were often referred to as banana republics. As more and more American businesses invented in Latin America, invested in Latin American countries and brought their businesses there, the United States sought to protect its economic interests. Nicaragua is a grace is a great case study to look at. If you remember in our podcast on the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt, we discussed the building of the Panama Canal, which began during his presidency. Prior to Panama being chosen, Nicaragua was also closely considered by our country. And when that didn't pan out, the president of Nicaragua looked to European countries like Germany and, you know, emerging Asian powerhouse of Japan to see if they would be interested in building a canal. This potential threat to a United States-owned canal in Panama and the American businesses that had invested in the region caused the United States to take action. In November of 1909, President Taft sent warships and Marines to Nicaragua. Groups within Nicaragua had been rebelling against their president, and the deaths of two American volunteers gave even more justification for the United States government to get involved. And the president of Nicaragua at the time was ousted from power. A U.S. military presence remained in Nicaragua for 15 years in order to maintain peace and, of course, to protect United States interests. Issues with Mexico were also a problem during his presidency. In 1909, President Taft crossed the Mexican border in what was considered neutral territory between the two countries and met with Mexican President Diaz. It was a historic meeting. It was the second international trip for a sitting president and the first time that a United States president went to Mexico. There was also an assassination attempt made on Taft, and it was not the first time someone had tried to kill him either during his presidency. There were a few attempts. Tell tell us about some of these attempts on Taft. Well, none of them were, were close. Like It's not like he was shot at, but there were these threats made that you know, people knew that there was perhaps a chance that something or somebody was going to take aim at the president. You know, today, when we we think about, you know, a presidential assassination attempt, I mean, of course, it should always be a big deal, but it was so common back then. I mean, look, somebody well, last shot time it was Teddy attempted Roosevelt. was probably Reagan in uh, in his well, first term. And they shot him. They shot Reagan. Um, you know, and, and an interesting story about Reagan when right before they put him out to, you know, do surgery, he looked around the room and he said, I sure hope you're all Republicans. But yeah. you think about during this time period, people have lived through 
a number of presidential assassinations. So this was maybe depending upon when you were born, maybe you lived to see two to three presidents killed or two to three presidents shot at. Whereas today, thank goodness, this is not a thing. You know, whether you agree or disagree with somebody politically, nobody should be killed for it, you know. But for Taft, he goes there and the meeting between the two occurred shortly before the Mexican Revolution. And there's this great letter from Taft to his wife after the meeting where he states that he's concerned for what will happen after the death of this 80-year-old president of Mexico. And he feared that a revolution in Mexico would begin because the United States had $2 million of, of investments there. Revolution in Mexico does break out and fighting so close to the United States border could have brought the United States into another conflict. But Taft was set on avoiding direct intervention in the region. He did, however, send about 20,000 troops to the border in March of 1911. And in a message to Congress, he stated, it seems my duty as commander in chief to place troops in sufficient numbers where if Congress shall direct that they enter Mexico to save American lives and property, an effective movement may be promptly made. Even though Taft and the United States Congress don't send troops to Mexico, this will change during the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And we'll talk more about U.S. involvement in the Mexican Revolution in our podcast on Wilson. So the election of 1912, it saw two former friends become bitter rivals. Theodore Roosevelt threw his hat into the ring for an unprecedented non-consecutive third term. And we've mentioned this in the previous podcast on Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. And for Taft, he did not particularly like being president, but he agreed to run for a second term, mainly because he felt it was his right, not his right, but his responsibility to uphold the Constitution because he felt it was kind of under attack. Roosevelt hoped to snatch the Republican nomination from the sitting president and once, you know, his handpicked successor. While he seemed to be the more popular choice, there were more pro-Taft delegates seated at the convention, right? Again, no one ever said politics wasn't a dirty game. Taft won the Republican Party's nomination and Teddy Roosevelt created a new political party. It was called the Progressive Party, but it's almost always referred to as the Bull Moose Party. The new political party touted TR's plan for a new nationalism. They hoped to create a strong federal government, and they supported women's suffrage, an end to child labor, an eight-hour workday, a minimum wage for workers, and the continuation of progressive reforms and regulation when it comes to big business. The Democrats nominated Woodrow Wilson. And while people only really discuss these three men, the election was really a four-way race. The Socialist Party nominated a man by the name of Eugene V. Debs. And the split of the Republican Party worked in favor of the Democrats, and it allowed Woodrow Wilson to win the election. President Taft came in third with just 23% of the vote. <clears throat> In his post-presidency life, you know, this is where Taft really shined. It's almost as if, you know, this cloud that of the presidency is no longer hanging over them. He loses weight. He goes and becomes, you know, a professor at Yale. He's teaching constitutional law. And he threw himself into life at Yale. 
In fact, there's a great Yale alumni magazine article from 2013 where he they talk about how the former president, he was coaching a freshman debate team. He attended the school's proms and their baseball games. He was a you know president of the American Bar Association. He helped to create the American Institute, the, the American Law Institute, along with a number of other people. He didn't do it alone. And while I'm touting some of his accomplishments, I should also mention that while he was still president, he advocated for the creation of a U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He felt it was important to have an agency that could represent the interests of U.S. businesses. And understand at this time, the labor movement is in full swing. There are many local chambers of commerce, but this would be able to reach out to all of those local groups and, you know, kind of have their hand on the pulse of what was happening. When World War I breaks out in Europe, Taft, along with a number of others, including uh, Elahu Root, uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise, Alexander Graham Bell, they created a league to enforce peace in 1915 in Philadelphia. And this organization is considered the precursor to the League of Nations. The purpose of this organization was for member nations to kind of jointly use their economic and military force against any one of their number that goes to war or commits acts of hostility against another. And again, Taft has this reputation for being a great administrator and he gets things done. So, you know, he's very busy after his presidency ended. He spent eight years at Yale until he was appointed by President Harding to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he replaced the man that he had appointed as Chief Justice. So picking a 65-year-old was a good, good choice for William Howard Taft. He was unanimously confirmed by the Senate on the same day he was appointed by the president. Imagine that happening today. He served as the 10th chief justice to the Supreme Court, and he served for eight years until his retirement a little over a month before his death. During his tenure as chief justice, he wrote 200 opinions for the court. That's a lot. He is also known for changing the Supreme Court. One of the first things that he did is that he lobbied Congress and to get them to pass a law that would change the manner in which the Supreme Court would hear cases. And it took four years to get that law passed. But the Judiciary Act of 1925 was passed. Before that bill, the Supreme Court heard a much larger number of cases each term. Now the court could decide which cases would be on their docket. And I don't know if you've heard that term before, but a docket is basically a calendar list of cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear. So when you hear that term in the news docket, that's what they're referring to. And this was not the only thing he lobbied Congress for. And it's interesting because as chief justice, he needed to lobby Congress. He was lobbying Congress, but it was not something that he did as president. He didn't think that was something that the president should do. Chief Justice Taft was instrumental in getting the Supreme Court its own building. The Supreme Court didn't always have its own home. It had a number of homes over its history, many different capitals, right? The United States had a number of capitals since its inception. New York, the first capital, New York City, they had one home called the Royal Exchange Building. In Philadelphia, they had two homes. They had a brief two-day stay at Independence Hall, and then they moved over to Old Town Hall. And when the capital of Washington, D.C. was built, there were plans for the buildings of an executive 
uh, building, right? The presidential, the executive mansion, which eventually becomes known as the White House, and a building for the legislative branch, the Capitol building. But no plans were made for the judiciary. The Supreme Court Historical Society has a lot of really good information on this. Congress allowed the Supreme Court to meet in various rooms in the Capitol building. From 1810 to 1860, the room where they met changed from time to time. But from 1895 to 1935, the Supreme Court met in the old Senate chamber. Taft got Congress to designate over $9 million for the construction of a Supreme Court building. He didn't live to see its completion, um, but he did oversee its planning. And Taft instructed the architect, a man by the name of Cass Gilbert, to design a building of dignity and importance that would be suitable for its use as the permanent home of the Supreme Court of the United States. And that Cass Gilbert did. While the building is much newer than, you know, the Capitol building and the White House, it was designed to match both structures. And there's a lot of symbolism in the building. And if you go see it, you will notice that there are sculptures representing justice and the order of law. There is a carved there are carved likenesses of individuals who helped make the building possible, including a young William Howard Taft, because after all, if somebody's going to you know, draw or sculpt your likeness, you want you know, want to be at your prime. Uh, former Chief Justice John Marshall. There's even a carved likeness of the architect of the building. And there are depictions of great legal minds. You know, there's Moses, there's Confucius. And there are even turtles in different locations. Turtles was used were used there used to symbolize longevity and the slow yet deliberate pace of justice. So, you know, justice is not going to be rushed. A man who was once his predecessor's hand-picked successor chose his own hand-picked successor for the Supreme Court. He would not retire until he got assurance from President Hoover that his replacement would be a man by the name of Charles Evans Hughes. Taft had actually appointed him to the Supreme Court when he was president, but he resigned in order to be able to run for president against Woodrow Wilson in 1916. Taft resigned, Hoover appointed Hughes, and about a month later, Taft died. The death of former president and Chief Justice Taft was announced by President Hoover, who stated the following, it becomes my sad duty to announce officially the death of William Howard Taft which occurred at his home in the city of Washington on the 8th day of March, 1930, at 5.15 o'clock in the afternoon. Taft was the first president to own a car and the last to own a cow. They wanted to have fresh milk in the White House. That's how they got it. He was the first president of only two U.S. presidents buried at Arlington National Cemetery. His wife is also buried with him. And to date, he is the only former president to also serve as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Upon hearing the news of Taft's death, Alfred E. Smith stated, he served his country in the highest tradition of American ideals. He will be mourned by a nation that knows how to value its great men. So I have to say, just listening to, to this, the stereotype or the, what was it, what we want to call it at the beginning, the rumor, the make-believe yeah. rumor in the beginning that he was um, stuck in a bathtub. I think it's, it's he's a very interesting guy. He 
He's the only one to serve as president and on the Supreme Court. And he was a very fair minded person. Yeah, such an interesting guy. And there, you know, there's some biographies written about him, but not a ton. And you'd think there would be more about him or more buzz about him because of what he did. You know, we've had other presidents, you know, do great things before their presidencies. You know, look at John Quincy Adams, great things before his presidency. He does great things after his presidency. But again, not a president that people really talk about. But William Howard Taft is such an interesting guy. And I really hope that instead of people, you know, thinking that myth about him, that they say, ah, yes, the only president who was also chief justice of the Supreme Court. Rub-a-dub-dub, never got stuck in a tub. A myth of the bathtub. Unbelievable. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.